Mediated Conversation on SAFM. 27 minutes now to nine the time. Time for your Mediated Conversation this morning. Over the festive season, a debate around payment systems erupted after a coffee shop chain attached to a clothing and food store said it would no longer accept cash payments. I have to say, they're not the only ones who do that. In more and more places, we're seeing shops and merchants refusing to accept cash. There are many reasons for this. Cash is expensive to handle. You have to keep it safe all the time. Carrying cash can make you vulnerable to criminals who can steal it from you. It's untraceable as well. There are other reasons. It's becoming much easier and cheaper to pay using other methods, both for the customer and for the merchant. So you can tap your phone or your watch. The merchant the, the, the merchant is getting the merchant is getting cheaper and cheaper point of sale systems. And in some places, there are also debates around systems using blockchain and cryptocurrencies that could maybe over time become more important. So how are we paying now and how are we going to pay in the future? First this morning, how is it all changing? Bronwyn Wilkinson is an economist at Flux Trends, someone who looks at how the world around us is changing. Then the devices that people are using. Sipumalele Zondi is a tech expert, has a show, of course, Network, on the SABC News Channel. And then in the informal sector, are things changing there or not? How expensive is it to use cash? How expensive is it to use a point-of-sale system? Rashida Muller is the president of the National Informal Traders Alliance of South Africa. We start then with Bronwyn Wilkinson from Flux Trends. Bronwyn, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for inviting me. Sure. How big are the changes that we're seeing? In some cases, it seems to be happening quite quickly. Yeah, well, that's the thing with the shift to a more digitized, more cashless, as we kind of calling it, economy. It can happen quite quickly, particularly if there is will from the powers that be, particularly within, say, the public sector that accelerate this change. Because as you articulated in your lead up to the story, there are many reasons from the retailer or from the supply side's perspective to want the switch away from physical cash, which is, as you said, expensive to carry and also difficult to track from the government's perspective with regards to things like tax, which we know is becoming quite a big issue. However, there is more resistance on the demand side, in other words, from people like you and me, and perhaps also from smaller businesses who might want to avoid some scrutiny by SARS, and also might have some limiting ability to actually get become a part of the cashless economy, and that becoming a part of the cashless economy or the digital cash economy means having formalized financial inclusion, access to things like banks, like apps, and like these new generation payment mechanisms, which are again expensive. So there's a bit of a divide between the demand and the supply side as to who's driving this change from the demand side, the consumer side, often switching to the formal banking or cashless economy is going to cost you more, both in terms of taxes, but also in charge of bank fees. But from the retailer and also from the government perspective, the kind of cost equation is kind of the opposite. In terms of the direction we headed, we definitely headed towards a more cashless, more digitized economy. We know that our government is one of the many governments looking at central bank digital currencies, which is a a new step up in terms of the evolution of the digitization of the economy that takes it far beyond credit cards and online banking like you know it today towards the more digital identity economy which is quite a complicated subject but it is a direction the world is moving in and of course this as as i said has has huge benefits to governments in terms of tracking and cracking down on things like gray listings and illicit capital flows and of course closing that tax net but also then giving them the ability 
happy to more micromanage the economy. So that we're going to see acceleration in that regard from the top. Again, retailers are also quite keen to move into the space in order to cut down on costs and cut down on risks. We in South Africa, of course, have a, a hugely criminal society, which is definitely worth giving pause to in these conversations. You kind of have these three groups that are pulling, but the way the future is moving is definitely towards more digitized economy and to the, if we're currently in the credit economy, we're going to move into the sort of identity credit economy kind of next, which is again, quite a big topic. I could unpack a little bit for you today if you, if you like, but that's the move that we are heading towards, kind of like it or not. And if you want some examples to how this can happen quite quickly, I think India is a great case in point. The government really accelerated its move towards not just the cashless economy, but also towards the digital identity economy with the Adha system. And of course, as many of your listeners will know, when they kind of pull the whole lot of notes out of circulation virtually overnight, just giving people a couple of days worth of notice, which kind of forced the economy and even the more underprivileged members of society to digitize very, very quickly. Using things like an excuse saying that we don't have access to smartphones is, is not really leg legitimate in a country like South Africa, where we have more cell phones than people and where there are various different digital opportunities available if you don't have a smartphone. Using various new sort of fintech payment solutions. We can digitize whether we want to or not is, of course, a different question. So when you talk about, you know, the reserve banks having digital currencies, does that mean we would move away from rands and cents? Or would we move, would we still have rands and cents, but sort of have a different system? You know, I don't know, use a thumbprint and it knows it's Steve and <laughs> it doesn't ask me even which account I want to pay with. Yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't change much from a practical perspective for you and I, but it changes where that information is stored and how many middlemen are required to be in any given transaction. As you know, if there is a digital transaction that takes place right now, if you go to one of those sort of cashless cafes that you mentioned, you would make your payment using a card. It'll go through a card-based payment gate, which would then go to the bank, which would then go, go through all the various different checks and balances. And of course, these incur fees. Essentially, with central bank digital currencies, there's the opportunity if not at the obligation for you actually to have a direct credit account or identity account or capital account directly with the central bank you wouldn't necessarily have to have banks as middlemen or payment companies involved as additional middlemen now whether that's the way these systems will be structured or not is up for debate countries like india again which we can look to as an example are wanting to put data fiduciaries in as a kind of alternative to our current banks to kind of manage your identity and your what's what's belongs to your you your credit access to goods services and opportunities where they may manage through a data fiduciary that has like a direct line with the central bank it gives governments more control over the flows but from a, a perspective for you and i who are already using things like credit cards it changes more on the back end and it changes the front end and it also means that your identity then becomes more directly associated perhaps through things like biometrics with your actual access to credit or your credit profile so there's a lot of things here i mean firstly um, <laughs> I, I don't really like my bank i don't know anyone who really likes their bank i mean it's fine <laughs> no. but but so, so i mean for them to disappear but on the other hand i think some people bizarrely may trust a bank more than they trust <laughs> government yeah um and in fact they would have a huge <laughs> well, <yes>. problem with <laughs> government knowing because at the moment yes government will know a little bit about my money but they won't know the full detail of it this would effectively mean yeah. they would know the full detail of it 
correct, governments would be able to see all your transactions. Already, like, let's be honest, though, if you are banking with any of the major banks, SARS can basically peer into your bank account, even though that information is kind of feel, <laughs> filtered via your bank, that your bank is still reporting to the government everything that you earn, even if it's not saying exactly the details that you named your transaction on. So we're already so far into this sort of financial surveillance economy, because that's what digitization allows us to do. It allows us to track and trace really everything. It very, very little can fall out of the cracks. So the, it's it's a it's a step change rather than an entire like a whole new paradigm because we're really so far in this direction it just kind of closes mm -hmm. a lot of those loops. In terms of trust, it is worth pointing out that according to like the Alderman Trust Index that came out towards the end of last year that we do trust businesses slightly more than we trust politicians and NGOs. So that is a factor here. But this is really a move towards the so-called trustless economy. A lot of these ideas came out of the crypto and blockchain space and are being adopted by states from a centralized rather than a decentralized perspective. In that, in a world where we don't trust each other, it becomes quite attractive to replace mm. trust. In other words, me deciding to trust you with information, right, with digitization. And of course, there's risks that come with that because, you know, as soon as there's a central ledger that's sort of controlling your access mm. to good services and opportunities, there is uh, there, there are vulnerabilities that come in from having access to that power. So what, what governments and what or lobbyists are trying to do is to try to put some checks and balances into place, much like central banks are supposed to be at least separate from the government. You know, they're supposed to have these sort of degrees of separation. That's why we're looking at things like data fiduciaries. Mm -hmm. So now seeing all your data as being part of your credit profile, not just your money in your bank account. That's the that's perhaps the biggest switch that we are seeing here. And at the moment, banks do that. But what will be these new middlemen that will try and protect your rights as an end user, mm -hmm. but also give governments the, the degree of control and trustlessness that they're wanting in a very distrusting world where everyone seems to be trying to sort of, you know, fudge the system and not pay their dues or not report mm. everything accurately. I mean, Bronwyn, if this happens, so if cash disappears and there's no other untraceable way for people to transfer goods and services, that would create a barter economy. You would have a sort of informal economy based on, I don't know, <laughs> the price of 330 milliliters of beer. And someone would say, I'm going to sell you this amount of drugs for this amount of beer or whatever, because that's how you would do it if you can't use cash. Well, it could be something like that, but private currencies are also something to watch. Of course, cryptocurrencies could be seen as a version of private currencies. In fact, people who believe in the philosophy behind a lot of the cryptocurrency sort of discourse have been suggesting that people get invested in those spaces for precisely this reason as an alternative to centralized state sort of omniscient uh, financial surveillance economies going forward but it's also sort of offline private currencies even things like your loyalty programs like for example your e-bucks or whatever could become more sort of fungible going going forward and of course you could have paper notes for your community currencies come up all the time we've just kind of become used in our current modern world to this idea that currency is only the fungible currency fungible fiat currency currency delivered by governments. But perhaps some of the more sort of liberal or the more democratic ways of looking at a fully digitized economy are that there are kind of opportunities for real peer-to-peer -peer transactions. The gray economy is always going to be with us, right? And where there's a will, there's a way and people find ways around systems. But private currencies is definitely a trend we've been tracking for some time, whether it's paper-based, loyalty point-based, or cryptocurrency based, these are all kind of action reaction to the sort of way the wind is blowing in terms of 
digital identity, digital currency, and digital credit going forward. Bronwyn Wilkinson, thank you from Flux Trends. Really do appreciate the time. Starting your mediated uh, conversation this morning, quarter to nine the time, talking about how payment systems are changing. Sipumalela Zondi is a TV presenter and lecturer, looks at the tech space, and of course uh, presents the show Network on the SABC News Channel. Sipumalela, good morning and thanks for your time. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me, Stephen. Firstly, our experience at the point of sale. You used to have cash and checks. There's so many different ways to pay now. I mean, people pay with a phone, people pay with a watch, and the technology for the point of sale service has gone from quite a big machine to a little machine to a very small machine that's smaller than a phone. Um, definitely, yes. Um, and actually, even your mobile device, um, it can actually be a point of sale um, a device as well, because it, it just depends on the payment gateway that you're using and um, what what it actually speaks to, whether um, it speaks to those um, different mo- um, mobile payment uh, methods where you can even use um, a, um, a, where you can even tap on a device and on a phone device, and it sends it to a payment gateway system, and it goes through, yes, it's moved from a very large device it's moved from very complicated um you'd remember that in the past um if you think about let's say just under 20 years ago where you would be charged extra in certain spaces if you wanted to uh pay digitally whereas now um you you won't be charged extra because they would say that there'd be an extra charge for that um but it's, it's because of the ease and because of um uh, how prevalent it, it's become to um even have these or where you find that even in certain spaces i remember even a car guard in in Parkhurst once when I walked out and he said tip us like I don't have cash and he said well I have a device you can just tap and it will and um, and it will go through and you would have paid for the car guard so yes they've uh, there've been many changes including a mobile phone um, if um, a, as opposed to the old school large device we tend to think of this particularly in urban areas because it's all about cell phones and coverage I'm going to come to that in a moment but for most people, for many people in the country, if you don't have great internet coverage, you would be able to use things like USSD as well, wouldn't you? I mean, most people should be able to get a USSD system working. In fact, that was the start, right? Um, because um, mobile money came into being because of M-Pesa, uh, which was developed by a student in Kenya. Um, and then it was bought by Safaricom, which is a, a mobile phone network provider in Kenya, partly owned by South Africa's Vodacom. Um, and that was the start. USSD technology um, launched in 2007. And yes, in certain um, spaces, you still find that USSD technology still works um, if you want to make uh, certain payments and ussd technology really is um that code that starts with a star number star number hash um and your payment would have gone through that still does exist um because there's still a huge chunk of well um south africans have more than a hundred uh percent ownership of cell phones, which means there's a a mobile phone for just about every individual in the country, but there's still a huge chunk of society that doesn't have smartphones, that uses um, what we call feature phones, those those old school phones that don't connect to the internet. And those then largely rely on USSD technology, yes. And this is really all about phones. I mean, without phones and the technology that comes with them, none of this would happen. And it also shows you how cell phones and that technology continues to change our lives in fundamental ways. 
Oh, totally. It, it is about phones. And um, just to go back to that Tempesta example, the reason it happened that way in Kenya um, is because people were actually largely unbanked, but just about everybody had a mobile phone. And so that's how the technology then came um, into being. And, and then the rest of the world picked up on this, that you can actually use a mobile phone in order, for, uh, in order to make payments. And then fancier technologies started being developed. Banks de developed other fancier technologies. Um, including uh, when you think about um, things like um, Apple Pay, for example, where mobile phone uh, mobile phone device um, creators as well started to come up with their own payment methods and payment systems um, as well uh, because of um, of basically how fancy the device, the mobile phone device, uh, was becoming and. E it could move beyond that, but sometimes you find that even when you get into these apps, they would ask for your fingerprint um, in order for you to verify. So um, you tap on the fingerprint feature on your phone, and that's basically how it's going to be. Um, thank you very much indeed. Sipumolela Zondi is a tech expert and presenter, of course, of Network on the SABC News Channel, senior lecturer in the subject as well. In a moment, what's happening with informal traders? Rashida Muller is, from the, is the uh, president of the National Informal Traders Alliance. Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Eight minutes to nine, the time you're with SAFM. Your Mediated Conversation continues around the changes we're seeing in payment systems. Bronwyn uh, Wilkinson from Flux Trends talking earlier about how you might have digital currencies managed by a reserve bank or the central bank of every country rather than banks. Rashida Muller is the president of the National Formal Traders Alliance. Rashida, good morning. Good morning. Um, and good morning to all the listeners. Do all informal traders still use cash, or are you seeing changes in your sector as well? You know, I think the education on who the informal sector is is still not a well-known issue to our South African public. We need to understand why an informal trader exists. And, you know, I have done a survey with so many different organizations in so many different provinces. And the answers are the following. Do we use speed point machines? Some, the Alliance has brought people like Vodacom to, to the associations to, to offer them these machines. But the way it has been done was not correct. And sometimes I think I blame myself for that. There has to be an induction. There has to be an education and understanding that we are moving into the fourth industrial revolution. Not moving, we're already there. Digitizing is very, very important, yes. But the informal trader is that little business on each and every corner of your streets, of your taxi ranks, and in certain squares. Informal traders are mainly elderly people. A lot of them are elderly people. Majority are over 50. This is their side hustle that they need to survive to keep, you know, their lives going at home. So, and, the, and the turnovers or the products that they sell, for example, fruit and veg. Fruit and veg, you buy an apple, a pear, you buy 10 rand bananas, 10 rand onions. It cannot be a swipe for that. That will continue in the future. 
However, there is a move towards the speed points. Personally, I sell clothing on the Grand Parade, and I realize that unless I have a speed point, I'm going to lose sales because my products are a bit more expensive than 10 Rand. So, yes, uh, we, we, we basically blocked or bumped our heads when we went into the first speed point. There was a monthly contribution. The turnaround of the money into a bank was taking too long. Traders were going into arrears because of the monthly fee that certain uh, speed point uh, operators were charging. That was another deterrent, and it actually those who went into it, over a thousand of us in Joburg, Cape Town, KZN, they felt, no, they, they are being conned, they are, are not really benefiting, they're paying more than what they should. Why must the, uh, why must there be an amount deducted from the, from the price of their, the stock item? So I don't see it happening in the near future. But I do see that there is a wide or very big group that could go into it if properly educated mm. and the machines are, you know, that there's training given sure. on these machines before they go on. One of the things here, Rashida, is that you are informal traders and the cash is not traced. Um, if you use a touchpoint system, are you not becoming a little less an informal trader and more a formal trader people would be using bank accounts i mean would it change your industry in other ways perhaps well it is very important that we do that 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 we do become traceable you know we encourage our traders to register what succeed we also need to realize that government will not give you any loan or funding if you are not a uh, you know, uh, properly registered as a business. So that is, those are the advantages of having your business more formalized, and we are pushing for that as well. The formalization of the informal economy is vital because the informal economy, economy is such a huge part of the economy of South Africa. And security, surely it's safer to not have cash lying around? Absolutely, it is safer. And we are trying to bring it out. I'm basically busy talking to the likes of, you know, service providers to come out and, and really analyze our needs and bring better products in and faster turnaround times into the bank accounts. So, yes, indeed, it is. And things are becoming, you know, not very safe nowadays. But unfortunately, it's livelihoods, it's survival, it's eking out the survival, and for that, they risk. They risk because that is how they put their, their daily bread and butter on the table. Sometimes there's not enough turnaround to put into the bank. You know, is it enough? So if you earn 100 bread, before you get home, 100 bread is spent on transport and, and, and bread and butter for the next day. There's much to be done, and therefore we as the sector, as the alliance, call upon government and business to work with us so that we can improve our situations. You know, things are very, very bad at the moment. This was the worst um, 
I am on the parade for 35 years. This was the worst festive season that we have ever had. It was like dead, dead, dead. Rashida Mona, thank you. President of the National Informal Trading Alliance with a very sober note to end that mediated conversation around payment systems. Sipumalele Zondi, as you know, tech expert, a presenter of Network on the SFEC News Channel and starting us off today, Bronwyn Wilkinson from Flux Trends.